you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It's Friday, June 16th, 2023, and this is Markets Daily from Coindesk. I'm Adam B. Levine, here again with your Daily News Roundup, now joined by Coindesk's George Kaloudis. On today's show, we're talking Bitcoin, BlackRock, and the bigger picture. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Bitcoin, Ether, and the rest of the crypto market bounced back after an initially negative reaction to the Fed's policy decision earlier this week. Among the biggest apparent catalysts for the move was news from BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, which yesterday formally filed paperwork with the SEC for the formation of a spot Bitcoin ETF. We've told you about these before. The filing says the fund's assets will, quote, consist primarily of Bitcoin held by a custodian on behalf of the trust, end quote. The custodian, according to the application, would be crypto exchange Coinbase. The U.S. securities regulator has already approved a number of futures-based Bitcoin ETFs, which track the price of Bitcoin by holding investment contracts rather than actually holding the underlying Bitcoin itself. And the SEC has notably rejected all other fund management companies' attempts at opening a spot Bitcoin ETF. Frequent listeners will remember that we've discussed this dynamic in the past, and my thoughts about it are pretty clear. We can go into those another day, though. What is important today is that the market is taking the attempt seriously, because BlackRock is no slouch. The firm manages some $10 trillion, a mind-numbingly large amount of money. And if anyone has expert knowledge on what it takes to get a financial product past regulators, it's BlackRock. Whether this ends up being an overall good thing is a separate issue, but at the very least, an approval of a BlackRock spot Bitcoin ETF would bring more attention and consequently more dollars to Bitcoin. It'll be interesting to see how the SEC responds to that, of course, because that may actually not be something that they're happy about. Overall, I think the big question here is, what does BlackRock know about spot ETFs and the SEC that we don't? And just in case we needed another proof point towards how important regulators are to the short-term price action in crypto, let's take a quick look at some of the altcoins, which the SEC called out as securities without actually bringing any such charges against them, in lawsuits against Binance and Coinbase over the course of the last two weeks. So far this week, Polygon's native token is down 19%, Avalanche's native token lost 17%, and the native token of the Solana ecosystem is down 15%. Bitcoin and Ether are also down on the week, but not as sharply. It's just the latest example of how a regulator intended to protect investors, rather than doing the hard work of actually proving their case in open court, is picking easier battles that still result in extreme collateral damage to projects who haven't even formally been accused of wrongdoing, with their communities taking the hurt. 
Meanwhile, in the land of statistics and correlations, Coindesk took a look at an oddball pairing, copper and Bitcoin. According to Coindesk's Glenn Williams Jr., the correlation coefficient between Bitcoin and copper futures was positive on May 27th, but has now turned negative. Copper is of course a widely used commodity and so is often looked at as a means by traditional financial professionals to test the health of the economy. And as we mentioned yesterday, Bitcoin has a tendency to go through bouts of uncorrelatedness, and so it's interesting to observe Bitcoin bucking yet another trend as we try to pin down exactly what Bitcoin's main market narrative is in the modern era. Today's crypto coverage comes courtesy of Coindesk Markets Analysts Lila Ledesma, Glenn Williams, and George Kaloudis. Bitcoin is currently trading at $25,557. That's up 2.73% since our show yesterday. While Ether is trading at $1,666 per ETH. That's up almost 2% of the same time period, according to the Coindesk Market Index. And speaking of the Coindesk Market Index, we're looking at an absolute reading this morning of 1,091. That compares against yesterday's reading of 1,069 and represents a 2% gain across top traded tokens on the day. And now, here's George Kaloudis. Hey y'all, George Kalutis here with your traditional markets update. Overall, there's green everywhere. In the US, indexes are back on track with the Dow Industrial Average, the S&P 500, and the Nasdaq Composite each adding about 1.2%. Heading out around the globe now, the European Regional Stock 600 rose 1.2%, London's FTSE 100 stepped up 0.6%, and over in Germany, the DAX climbed 1.3%. Elsewhere, Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index increased 1.1%, while the Shanghai Composite and Japan's Nikkei 225 added roughly 0.6%. In commodities markets, Brent crude, that's the international benchmark for oil, rose by 2.8%, trading hands at $76.19 per barrel, where gold also rose, currently priced at $1,975 per troy ounce. Rounding out our coverage, First Republic Bank, that's our current bellwether for the ongoing monetary policy-induced banking crisis of 2023, got in on the action with a 5.8% price bump, back up to $0.18 per share. Today's traditional market update draws from MarketWatch. Stay tuned for after the break where we'll dig into some bigger picture stories. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If there's one lesson to learn from the last decade or so, it's that unintended consequences are a thing. And while it can look like a good idea at first, in the short term, to systemically manipulate complex systems that govern our lives, it's almost always a bad idea. Because while you can easily model and identify what you hope to accomplish, The moment where it comes to contact with real people, with real agency, who aren't just statistics on a piece of paper, things get messy quick. In San Francisco, the government and many of the people who live there are learning this lesson. I lived most of my life in California, growing up in the Bay Area outside San Francisco. It was the city to me. And many of my best early memories came from trips to it. San Francisco was always a progressive bastion where exciting new ideas were tried first the home of a real counterculture, even as it was surrounded and inhabited by some of the biggest and most important companies in the world. But as happens, times have changed. To capture the city's problems today is too long, complex, and beyond the scope of this story. But two things in particular are worth noting that have led to this moment. The first is essentially the decriminalization of many kinds of crime. This was done with, on their face, good intentions. After all, many people who commit crimes and wind up in jail are really people who are on the ropes of life, without any better option and with little they perceive to lose. That's a real thing, and a compassionate response makes a lot of sense, so long as you don't think beyond those first-order effects. But the unintended consequences are, of course, obvious. More crime and little to no support from a city that then hopes to keep doing business, from a police department intended to keep the peace. The other catalyst is the response to COVID-19 by both the state of California generally and San Francisco in particular, which locked down hard and successfully broke the habit of going into the office for work. 
San Francisco was one of the most valuable cities in the world, and that was a big part of what drove it, in particular the financial sector. And as workers moved out, more crime moved in. There's more to it than that, but let's just stop there. San Francisco for many years maintained some of the most valuable real estate, both commercial and residential, in the nation with high occupancy rates, and really was seen as the shining city on the hill for tech entrepreneurs looking to make it big, as well as those who fashion themselves in the same way, but were really more like conventional bankers. But that's not true anymore. With many of the biggest companies, from Facebook and Twitter to Salesforce, switching from hungry consumers of office space to literally subletting their leases, That dynamic has shifted dramatically over the last year, and now even more dominoes are starting to fall. Earlier this month, Park Hotels announced that they would walk away from loans on two San Francisco fixtures, the Hilton San Francisco in Union Square and the Park 55 Hotel. Essentially, the company is forfeiting ownership of the properties to lenders in exchange for not having to pay back that $725 million loan that they've taken on them. Then, earlier this week, a major mall operator announced it would essentially do the same thing, walking away from the Westfield San Francisco shopping mall after the mall's largest tenant, Nordstrom, declined to renew, citing decreased foot traffic and increased crime. The reasons for each action are specific, but they speak to the more general problem with San Francisco specifically and larger cities as a whole. But the second-order effects of this tie right back into our big focus, which is, of course, monetary policy, banking, and macroeconomics, as they relate to our lives today. Since the abrupt collapse of Silicon Valley Bank late last year, which was itself catalyzed by the U.S. Central Bank keeping interest rates too low for too long and then raising them too high, too fast for many to adjust, we've been in a period of quiet crisis where many banks, lacking the central bank's latest bailout facility, would be obviously and instantly insolvent. Although the bigger banks are essentially guaranteed further bailouts should anything happen, they are of course systemically important as the story goes, It's not really feasible to do that with the larger regional banking sector. And once you start digging into the specifics of how insurance on bank deposits work, it's not a pretty picture. That regional banking sector has, in many situations, bet heavily on commercial real estate. And if these two instances of major businesses walking away just so far this month from commercial real estate loans, in what is essentially the worst market for commercial real estate in many years and perhaps my adult lifetime, That could pretty easily catalyze the next phase of what I've been describing as the monetary policy-induced banking crisis of 2023. And that crisis would then need to be stopped because fractional reserve banking is essentially a confidence game and panic is contagious. That's not happening today, and it's not something to be alarmed over. But it is a reminder that the world is complex, and a problem we think that we can use the government to solve might sound good, but when you look beyond the first-order effects, you might find better reasons to do nothing at all. In the meantime, commercial real estate in large cities, with of course San Francisco as the bellwether, are an important story, and it's one we'll be watching. Today's coverage for this one draws from Reuters and Seeking Alpha, but is almost entirely my opinion. And finally, a joint experiment by central banks has tested ways to connect monetary authorities and the private sector to facilitate retail digital currency payments, according to a new report released this morning. That experiment saw the London Innovation Hub of the Bank for International Settlements, known as the Central Bank of Central Banks, and the Bank of England develop some 33 application programming interface or API functionalities to test what they describe as more than 30 central bank digital currency or CBDC use cases, including offline payments. Project Rosalind, as it's called, looked at how an API layer could support a retail CBDC and facilitate safe and secure payments through different use cases, said the head of the Innovation Hub for the Bank of International Settlements in a press release. And yes, spoiler alert, they found that in fact a digital standardized form of money could be really useful in a whole variety of ways. This is just the latest turn in a story on central bank digital currencies, 
where those who manage national monies will eventually, essentially, try to convince a skeptical population that a digital money where the government can see everyone's balances and has essentially complete control over not just the macroeconomic reality that we all have to live with, but also the microeconomic situation for each individual person who uses it. That's of course not how they'll advertise it, but it's the reality of what these systems threaten to be or to become. And it is, in reality, a diversion from the true innovation of cryptocurrencies, notably Bitcoin, which is not the digital borderless nature of the technology, but rather the differences in how they answer the question of who has power in the system, and most importantly, who gets to decide when to change the rules. Our world today is governed by institutions who are nominally supposed to enforce the rules, but who in reality can and do change them whenever they feel such changes are appropriate. As I told you in the last story, this leads to significant unintended consequences that have, in a very real way, crafted the reality in which we find ourselves. We are at the end of a long age of global dollar dominance, and history tells us that there will be a moment when the future of money is up for debate. And the only question that matters in that conversation is what comes next. A central bank digital currency, whether issued by a powerful nation or by a consortium of such countries, using a basket of their currencies as its backing, is honestly no different from the systems that we've used over the last hundred years. All the power to change the rules is in the hands of the powerful. But that moment will be unique from historical examples we can look at, because there will be, and there is, a digitally native form of money that can't be controlled by anyone, and which could serve the purpose of that commonly shared value behind the money that we all use around the world, every day. So the important thing is that the innovation isn't the technology. It's the distribution of power. And that's worth keeping in mind as, with the U.S. central bank rolling out its not-a-CBDC in the form of Fed now later this summer, the heat is on. And although we can't see it yet, looking back in hindsight, we may realize that the moment is coming soon. This one is also mostly my opinion, but draws from a Coindesk article authored by Chamomile Shumba. And that's our show for today. Thank you very much for listening. Today's episode was edited by Ryan. And for those of you still with us, we'd love to hear what you think. You can send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.